Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And so today, we're going to be talking with Brennan McDonough, who is the lone survivor of the Yarnell Hill fire tragedy in 2013. Today, he's a public speaker and works with numerous nonprofits for veterans, police officers, firefighters, and emergency medical services, and he lives in Prescott, Arizona. And this is exciting for me because I've, we've, we've been trying to link up now for quite some time, and I understand that uh, Brennan's a very busy guy with some of the work that he's going to talk about today. But uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Brendan, he was the subject of, and his crew, uh, the 19 folks that perished, um, subject of a, a movie, a Hollywood movie that came out. It was released by Columbia Pictures. And in the story, his story, actually, he was on the verge of being a hopeless heroin addict. And then he was um, he joined the Granite Mountain Hotshots out of Prescott, Arizona. And um, he was brought on by the superintendent, Eric Marsh, who's uh, depicted in the movie as well. And in June 30th, on June 30th of 2013, um, McDonough was, he was serving as the lookout. And it was the, a tragic fire that killed 19 of his uh, co-workers, you know, his brothers. And the significance of that other than just being a horrific tragedy, is that's the largest number of firefighters that have perished in one day since 9-11. And uh, after that, uh, Brendan suffered from bouts of depression and PTSD and and really worked through that and is doing a lot of work to address not only uh, th- those issues within himself, but helping others as well. And so we've got Brendan on the show today, and he's going to talk to us about the tragedy, what led to that. But being a recovery podcast, I really wanted to focus on Brendan himself and his past and his addictions and his issues, but and how he recovered from, from that or is in recovery from that, I should say. So with that, Brendan, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity. It means a lot. Well, I, you're in a position to do a lot of uh, really help the people that are out there suffering today. This is a very weird time for our first responders in the nation. In fact, as we speak, as we speak, we have more riots uh, occurring due to an incident that happened uh, in the last couple of days up in, in Minnesota. And and I just know that the in the work that I do and the work that you do, this is just going <laughs> to, we're going to be busy for a while because it's not only trauma for the, for the nation, but for the people that are out in the front lines every single day. So with that, so just tell us a little bit, little bit about yourself and your background and really just kind of how did we yeah. end up here today? How is it that we're talking today? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, starting out at a young age, I started using drugs and alcohol at about 13. And it it really progressed throughout high school. You know, it started with a little bit of drinking, a little bit of pot, and kind of climaxed in after I graduated. um, I wanted to be a firefighter, but I was kind of living this double standard life of partying, you know, and cocaine came in the mix and prescription pills and I was trapped, you know, and I really didn't realize it until the day I tried to quit. Um, and it, it was tough, you know, I was in, in college, but still using and trying to, trying to get my life together. And, you know, Mike, like most young kids, just a lot of peer pressure and a lot of, um, misguidance and lack of guidance and, and family support. And so, when I graduated the fire academy, it was it was time to you know do do some schoolwork and enroll in my EMT class. And man, Michael, I, I I flunked out of that so quick just because I had no comprehension of actually studying. Everything that I had learned was all through muscle memory of being hands on. And so, what a kind of time to sit in front of a book. I, I flunked out, and for me, I kind of took that as a sign of like, okay. Well, Maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do. So I kept diving deeper into drugs and I found myself in the summer 2010 
um, just really, just really out there and, and not working and not going to school and making new friends that were in, into drugs and, you know, were suffering from that disease. But at that age, I wasn't willing to listen to nobody. And so I was arrested, um, Christmas of 2011, like two days before Christmas and was facing a few felony charges. And it was a huge wake up because I had a kid on the way, you know, and, um, I'm going to be a dad. I'm, I'm 19 and I am but it's lost as lost gets. And I remember getting out and I was given a second chance and I remember staying sober for about like two weeks. And I, I didn't know what meetings were. I didn't know what recovery programs were. I had, I had no clue about any of that. Right. And so that was a, that was a real struggle for me. And so I thought, okay, what's the next best thing? So I get back into school. And so I start looking at this EMT class and I'm like, I want to be a firefighter. I need to be a dad and I need to give back to the community. And I want to, I want to be of service to others because I know how well that does for the heart and soul. And so as I was going through this EMT class, I kind of held out being sober, you know, two, three weeks, four weeks. And, you know, I was passing my test and I found myself once again around the same people. And those, those people, places, and things started to pop back up. And I, I found myself using again. And it wasn't until kind of the second half of that semester, I had overheard some guys talking about an opening on a hotshot crew. I remember thinking to myself, that's what I want to do. I want to be a hotshot. You know, just the term alone, right? Just a, a 19-year-old kid, <laughs> arrogant and cocky, right? And just thinking like, that's what I want to do. And they weren't talking to me, though, because it's a small town, right? And so I just overheard them. And so I showed up that next morning, and I, I, I walked in, and just like the movie shows, uh, it was not a warm welcome. <laughs> um, it was like, what are you doing here? You know, you don't belong here, pretty much. And I remember going to leave, and the superintendent, Eric Marsh, caught me at the door. And, you know, he said, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? And I said, well, I just want to drop off my resume, but it sounds like you're full he goes, well, I've got one open slot, you know, can you do an interview? And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, next week, you know, it was, it was Friday, you know, come back on a Monday or something. I'm like, yeah, of course. And mind you, I'm in a tank top and jeans. I'm going to go do some random side construction work. So this is the early morning. And uh, he goes, all right, well, come sit down. And I remember my heart dropped. I'm like, holy cow, this, this is real. And so we start going through these interview questions and I'm a pretty good talker, you know, and so I'm talking my way out of this question and that question, but facts are facts. And so when we get to the, the criminal history, you know, if I lie, they're going to find out. HR is going to find out. They're going to know. And I'd rather be known for being truthful at this point in time in my life. Like, why not do something different? Right. And my daughter was just born and I'm trying to make a difference in her life and my life. And so I told them, I said, Hey, I've, I've got this felony charge. And if I complete probation, it'll be gone. And I'm really trying to make a difference in my daughter's life. So then we get to the next question, you know, hey, what, have you ever used drugs before? What does that look like for you in your life? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, uh, there's lying and there's job suicide, right? And so I told him, I said, hey, I've, I've had a problem with drugs before. I'm really looking to turn around my life, but little did they know that was like a, within the week, you know, cause I'd use, try and get sober, de self detox, end up using, you know, I was going through that vicious cycle throughout that EMT class while trying to stay informed, you know, it's not an easy class and he goes, okay, well, I don't know what we could do. So he calls up HR and he's talking to HR and the lady's like, I could hear just frustrated, you know, cause she's got to do all this paperwork to try and hire me. And so he jumps off the phone with her and he looks at me and says, Hey, this is a deal. I'm going to, I'm going to give you an opportunity here, but the minute you quit, you're gone. You're done. You don't have the same leniency as anyone else. We don't have time for it. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is it. This is my shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I jump in my car and I'm excited and I call my mom and uh, I'll, I'll never forget this. Tell my mom, like, Hey, I got hired on with the fire department. And she kind of, kind of sighs, 
And she goes, well, we'll, we'll see how long that lasts. You know, I was just in jail six months ago, not even four months ago, just in jail. And you had used that week. Yeah. Yeah. And I used that week. And so that excitement kind of settled in of like, how am I going to be clean for this? Not only how am I going to piss clean for this, I am physically not in shape. Like the most I ever ran was on the wrestling team in high school for two miles. And these guys are running seven, eight, nine, ten 10 miles. They're carrying 45 pound packs with them, you know, for PT hikes, two, three hours at a time. And that's just a warm up for the job. You're, you're hiking into a fire two, three miles with your pack and then carrying that pack all day for 16 hours straight, fighting fire up and down a hill and then hiking back, sleeping in the dirt and then doing it all over again. And so the nerve set in. And I remember just thinking to myself, Brennan, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And so I show up Monday, I do what's called the pack test. It's a three mile, 45 pound pack test for 45. You got to do it in under 45 minutes. And then the rest of the crew had already done it since I was a late hire. So it's me and one other gentleman. And we're, we're going, you know, I'm hiking around this, this trail and doing laps and he's like hey man you got to pick it up like if you don't pick it up you're not going to make it and so i've i've never felt such physical pain in my life i've I've broken ribs fingers had my nose broke um you know some pretty painful stuff but i've never been in such agony and just snot dripping and just period-eyed and just ears are itching and shin splints and i'm like i gotta do this I got to do this for my daughter. I got to prove everyone wrong. that said, I wouldn't amount to nothing. And so I get done at like 44 minutes and 50 seconds. Oh, wow. And so I fall down, Mike, and I, I can't even pull off this vest, this vest. And so Clayton helps me pull off this vest. He's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm just trying to give you a heads up. Like that's going to be the easiest thing you do in this job. <laughs> and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. All Today was an easy day. <laughs> yeah. All the while I'm detoxing. I've probably got multiple drugs in my system. And so I'm trying to stay as hydrated as possible. So I go take my UA and I, I finish out the day and I go home and I'm in, I'm asleep by like, you know, six, 6 PM. I'm asleep. I'm so physically exhausted. I'm asleep and I wake up and I show up for the next day. And I kept doing that day after day. And, you know, you come from the, the service work. And so there's, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, rookie camaraderie, right? We'll, oh, yeah. we'll call it that uh, for the listeners and viewers. And so I'm taking that and I, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to put my head down and be unseen and just show up and put the work in. And I'm always dead last, right? But I'm not quitting. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, I'm done. I'm done quitting on myself. But what was interesting for myself and so many others that kind of hear my story is that I didn't understand what recovery meant. And so I left drugs behind at that point in time. Um, Cold Turkey. I I never attended a meeting counseling, you know, maybe as a young kid, but so it was this like weird, weird moment for me that this sense of purpose had given me the ability of being a young father to, to quit. And so I went on for two and a half years to fight fires all over the country and to rebuild my life and restore the things that I had broken and relationships and, you know, just everything, the wreckage that we cause, you know, and I remember the arresting officer uh, running into him, you know, probably about a year after, um, year after I got hired and we chatted and he was like, man, I didn't, I'm impressed. Like, I'll have to tell you. I'm impressed and I didn't, I didn't think you could do it, but, but thank you for doing it. Thanks. Thanks for restoring that hope, you know, that people can recover and they can make a difference. And so, you know, life is going extremely well and kind of like how you talked about initially, um, June 30th, 2013, we go to a fire, but I'm separated from my crew because I'm a lookout and just through some, some freak weather events, you know, we're starting to watch homes burn and it's just, just a rapid change throughout the day. And my crew gets trapped and I hear this over the radio and it's just gut wrenching. It's just full on, 
you know, I'm in shock. Like I had, these men had saved my life and I looked up to them so much and they had so much experience on that crew. And I couldn't, I couldn't seem to wrap my head around it. And then I'm, I'm waiting. We're trying to get to them and we can't, there's too much fire on the ground. They're, they're, they're too far back in and they're, they're putting helicopters up and they couldn't drop water. And they, there's just so many things that, that went wrong that day. And finally they, they land a DPS helicopter with a paramedic and he's hiking down and the, the community is still burning. We're still lo- losing homes at this time. I remember hearing over the radio, he says, I've, I've got 19 confirmed. And for a split second, Michael, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I told you there was 19 guys. I told you who had a chainsaw, who had a tool. And it hit me that 19 of my brothers had just passed. And instantly just this, this depth of sadness, you know, that, that took me back to like some deep childhood trauma. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced anything like that in my life. The closest thing I'd experienced is, you know, my, my dad leaving it too, which I don't remember. My mom just been out of my life. Right. And so I just break down and I'm crying I'm sitting there going, God, like, why am I here? Like, please don't let this be true. Mm. Please, please don't let this be true. And as the moments go on, you know, they're starting to try and inform families and, you know, media is on their way up to try and cover this story and, you know, words getting out of what, what has happened. And I'm sitting there all alone. There's other firefighters on this fire. Right. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't know them as intimately as I knew my brothers. They're trying to comfort me and, and, I, and it's just every range of emotion, just anger, depression, guilt, shame, just kicked in. And I'm, and I'm in shock. And they talk about that shock. And I go to the high school, the middle school that night where the families are meeting and I was supposed to go home, but I, I, I didn't want to go home. One of my roommates had just passed. I don't want to go home. I go to this high school and, I'm, and I walk in this auditorium and I remember seeing just the faces and it wasn't disappointment that I had lived, but just a, it was just the confirmation that their loved one had passed. Mm. And that guilt would walk with me for years. You know, I would attend numerous funerals for my brothers all over the country, memorials, fundraisers. I would would experience things in my life that people shouldn't have to experience. And though I didn't turn back to heroin, I found comfort in a bottle of booze. And I was binge drinking and you know, suicidal in constant depression. And I thought the shock would go away. And it, 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 that shock stood around for, for months. And I started to begin to build these deeply negative beliefs and coping skills, you know, cause I'm in this limelight doing interviews. I'm, I'm talking with people. I can't go within my community without being recognized. And so you know, they're trying to honor them by remembering them. And it's just a trigger for me. And I am. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. But for me, it's just another visual of what happened that day and unfolded. And so I go home or I go to the bars and I just drink myself to sleep. I'd get in fights, get in arguments with officers. Like this wasn't me. Like this wasn't who I was before, but it had radically changed my life. And it, it, it had taken over. And so for years I suffered because early on, I didn't know what recovery was. I was just abstinent, abstinent from drugs, right? I didn't go through a program. I didn't work the steps. I didn't find my higher power. I just found a job that saved my life. And now that that was gone, I was back to square one. Yeah. So it went after that happened. I mean, I, obviously, we, we know the end of the story or where you're at right now, but what was it that mm-hmm. led to it? So at some point, you're getting you're going to bars, you're getting drunk so you can sleep, um, you're getting into fights, 
um, you're having discussions with or interactions with police officers again, and you knew this wasn't you. So what happened from there? How did you, how did you get from that point to where you are now? You know, I found myself, this pastor kept, kept checking in with me throughout this whole time and kept, you know, seeing how I was doing and kept meeting for breakfast. And he started this recovery Bible study. And I remember he kept inviting me and he's like, Hey, there's other guys that are, that are trying to get sober like you. And I think he could be helpful. And, you know, I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll show up, you know, just, just, just show up once and then you don't have to go back again. Um, a lot of those men in that Bible study, you know, weren't believers. They were at treatment centers. And so the pastor had built relationships to be able to offer this to them and, and have dinner with them and talk with them and just really have a really solid meeting. And I remember hearing these stories of these men in there that were struggling with addiction, but had sobriety like I had never had before. They had a piece about themselves that I had never had before. And mind you, I'd written a book, the movie's due to come out in like six to nine months. I had a home, I had a truck, I had my bills paid, I had a fiance, I had kids. So the outside looking in looks great, right? Mm -hmm. But the internal is just dead. And I find myself in my truck after that meeting and I remember just that foxhole prayer, right? God, if you change this, if you can remove this, I will do this. I will serve addicts for the rest of my life. As long as I have the opportunity, I will serve addicts. And so I, I kept showing up to that meeting every Wednesday. I kept kept praying that same prayer every day. And I continued to, to deepen that relationship with, with God and find purpose and healing and forgiveness within that fellowship. And I started getting in, invited into the 12 step community. Right. And that's all. That was a whole nother resource for me. Mm-hmm. And I was addressing my trauma and I'm looking at my PTSD and I'm watching myself transform, not overnight, but re- fairly quick, you know, fairly quick. And I'm going, there's some to this. There's some to recovering, understanding, where this disease lies. And so I pick up like six months and I'm going on movie premieres. I'm all over the country, but I've got these men back at home that are checking in. Hey, Brennan, how you doing? What's going on? What you doing? Well, you know, cause I'm staying at hotels and there's a, there's a, there's a bar, there's a mini fridge. Yeah. You're in another town. Yeah. Nobody, nobody there to watch you. Nobody knows. But someone did. And so you had talked about my superintendent being in recovery and um, the actor who played him, Josh Brolin, is in recovery as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Josh knew my struggles. And so he'd check in with me every day. He'd say, hey, man, how you feeling? You doing okay? You know, you know, I know it's a lot to take in. Just, just super compassionate. So not only do I have a lot of support because even the people in the film, they, they witnessed some of these drunken encounters that I had. You spend enough time with somebody, you know, you spend two years working on a film, they're going to get a glimpse into it. Mm-hmm. And so I had these support systems on, on both ends, you know, not only where I was traveling, but back home of people that loved me. And I hadn't felt that since I was on the crew and I found brothers in recovery. I found brothers in a relationship with God. And it was shortly after the movie had premiered that I felt like I was called to open a Christian treatment center. And I'm like, what? Like I'm a knuckle dragon hotshot, right? <laughs> you know, I don't know degrees. I don't know business, but God just kept putting the right people in my life. And from the time that I put pen to paper, the time we opened was nine months. I mean, it was quick. It was from the time the business plan was written to the time the doors were open was nine months. And so like, that's what leads me today to where I'm in and how we connected, right. Is like, yeah, just getting out there and having this conversation of addiction and, and trauma and loss and what does recovery look like? And it looks different for so many people, but we find that commonality within the fellowship. Yeah. So when you say that you, 
felt called. How did you know? How did you know that this was your your calling? Because it, it just seems like it just came to you that you you needed to open up this uh, treatment center, and you were even surprised. Like, wait a minute, is this my higher power? This is my calling, really? So, how did that come to you? How did you get that feeling? You know, I had seen a need for a Christian treatment center specifically in our community, you know, Prescott's been known for recovery and mm-hmm. good and bad. And, you know, today I can say that the, the recovery community here is really solid. And over the last four years, it's really changed and become dynamic. And, you know, I think kind of the, one of the ways that I felt that I needed to do this and I knew why and how was when I started praying and I'm like, God, I don't, I don't have the resources or the tools to do this. Like, this is a huge hurdle for me to overcome. It wasn't like I had, um, you know, money at disposal to, to gain a facility, to hire staff, to go through the insurance. I knew nothing about it. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about levels of care. And you weren't so a licensed counselor, to, none of that. I mean, you, you didn't, yeah. you didn't have the educational background for it. Um, you know, no. as far as recovery was concerned, you know, on the educational side but people were put in my life very quick that yeah. did that had worked for programs or have helped build programs and say, Hey, I, I believe in what you're doing. and I want to be a part of this. And so it happened really fast, you know, the program piece and, you know, learning about the different ins and outs of this business industry and picking up some great mentors throughout the time frame allowed me to be able to, to open this place. And, you know, we've been open for almost three years this summer. So I've obviously learned a tremendous amount from the top, top to the bottom. You know, I've worked almost every position right in this company and have contact with all of our employees and, and really have uh, such a, just a deep understanding of, of what they're doing from the level that I can, but that's why, I felt so fortunate to have the professionals that come in and say, Hey, I, I know counseling and I know what this looks like. And I know what we need to do to, to provide them the healing that they need to live a long time of sobriety and to have happiness and joy and to walk through tough times and stay sober. And so it's been, it's been amazing, you know, to, to watch that, to witness it, to be a part of it, to play, play a small role in it. And you know, I'm, and I'm continuing to learn too, you know, and that's, that's a big piece for me. And I think you could relate to this Oh yeah. in any kind of service to, to others. It's, Hey, you know, remain teachable, remain a sponge. Don't stop learning. Cause the minute you stop learning is the minute someone's going to get hurt. So I'm always trying to connect with people and, and learn and, and share and, and really see how, cause even in the last five years in the first responder community, PTSD has completely changed. Mm-hmm. The way it's looked at, the way it's treated, um, even with an addiction, a lot of, you know, trauma therapy wasn't included, you know, up until quite a few years ago. It was offered at certain places, but it didn't have such a heavy focus. So it's so amazing to see, like, programs just continually growing and, and trying to meet the needs of those who are suffering. Yeah, I it, just even on the counseling send, uh, side. I mean, there's a there's a lot of studies out now that are really changing just the the face to face counseling and the approaches that are used as well. I, I just know in my time in recovery, uh, you know, about nine and a half years, there's been a lot of changes, and so that's mm-hmm. fantastic. You guys have been open about three years now. Um, is this focused on the first responder community, or is it the the public? Maybe the public with. Uh, a group of first responders or what's your approach in that regard? Yeah. So everyone's integrated in our program, but they have an individualized treatment plan. And so first responders are integrated with civilians. And for me, that was one of the biggest hurdles I had was opening up to civilians about my trauma, but that's where I found my sobriety is, you know, walking alongside God with men and maybe didn't walk in my shoes, but who can say we've all walked in the same shoes, right? Right. Maybe the same brand, you know, like, yeah, I've worn a pair of Nikes before, but, you know, all of our journeys have, have, have been so unique, but not unique, right? And we found that integration to really work well here, but certain clients need, you know, more trauma therapy, certain clients need more family work, certain clients need a combination of both. And so we walk alongside them and, and you know, through our long term, we've got 
a 45 day track, a 90 day track, and then they can even extend with us longer for our extended care program. Right. Well, I found, and I'm sure that you found as well, because of the, as we said in the beginning of this podcast, the stigma that's associated with addiction, and that's one of the areas where I'm working hard to educate the public so there isn't as much stigma. And with first responders, military, you know, certainly my world, uh, the police world and the FBI world and, and all the other federal agencies, you know, I, I'm here in the Washington, D.C. area. So I a lot of the folks I work with are in the, the alphabet soup of, of agencies. And there's a lot of stigma associated with it. And, and early on, I always get, hey, look, I only want to be around my own. I only want to be around other FBI agents or State Department folks or firefighters or police officers. And that's where people come in. And and it I, that was where I was, you know, when I first came into recovery as well. Just because you, that we have our own concept concept in our mind as to, you know, people that have addictions, what who they are and what they are. And in time, you know, if people get... Uh, time in recovery like I did, you start to realize, now, wait a minute. No, addiction's an equal opportunity destroyer. And everybody, it, we're all yeah. equal in this. And and no, I have my brothers and my, my brothers and sisters in my profession. This is a different animal. And I need to get out of my, my realm. I can't just be around the people that I work with. I have to go out into the community because people, we can help people in the community and they can help us. And I, but there's just such a, uh, it's just such a closed off community because of the nature of the work. And, and, and I'll tell you in the last year, it's actually gotten worse just because I know a lot of people in, in the law enforcement community feel like the, the public has turned on them so it's it's just they're they're just not wanting to exhibit more chinks in the armor so to speak and it's become very very difficult so i'm glad to hear that you're encouraging you know first responders to get out and not just become so focused on the job because i don't frankly i don't think that's healthy i think you have to get outside i found i help myself the more or the less time i should say that i spent associating with other first responders and and really kind of normalizing everyone else because you you just start when you're a first responder you start particularly in law enforcement when you're dealing with people that have problems right you know when you're for when you're a police officer people aren't calling you because they're having a good day they're calling you because you have a bad day and when you do that yeah. you know every hour on the hour uh, you know, and that's all you do and you do that for 20 plus years you start to think that everybody's got problems well not everybody does you know what I mean so it's yeah. good yeah yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. I think, and I think there's a time and place for it too, right? And I yeah. think, you know, there's some amazing work that, you know, some of the first responders groups are doing within within their own, within peer support. And, you know, I know they're starting to become some treat, treatment facilities that are union-backed that are, are hosting that specific population. And, you know, I feel like that's that's important too for, for some of those that are out there. And But for those that are willing, it's like, hey, this is, this is a pretty rad opportunity and, you know, because there is that brotherhood and sisterhood, mm-hmm. you know, there really is. But I, I know for me, I've, I've found brothers and sisters in recovery as well that um, may not have the same badge or the same title, but we all we all suffer from that same disease. And so they've, you know, really stepped into my life and, and been a part of it in a, in a positive mindset. So mm-hmm. I think if, if any encouragement, I think both of us are trying to give to people it's like, hey, you know, I know it's a lot of stuff out of your comfort zone to even say, you know, to be a first responder and say, I need help. But just to even take it a step further and be open to that process. And you'll be surprised at how people receive it. Oh yeah. That, that was absolutely my case. Now circling back on something that you had said, so you have pre pre fire service and then uh, when it came to getting sober and then post fire fire service. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it, it sounds like, pre-fire service, you had not been exposed to meetings, you had not been exposed to recovery per se, no treatment center, nothing like that. And then and then it was handled differently afterwards. And you kind of paint the picture for something that I've been, I've been talking about on this podcast for quite some time, and that is this, that not using and being sober are two separate concepts, meaning oh, yeah. um, I know what happens is when people don't have direction in their life, when people don't have discipline in their life, when they don't have hope, when they don't have something to strive for, because that's something that I discovered in my own 
walk, and it, and it sounds like you had the same thing, is I found when I got into recovery that I always had to have something. It, it helped me mentally. It helped me in, in sobriety to always have a goal that I'm shooting for, whether, you know, when I first got into recovery, I got into running and triathlon and cycling and then worked on another college degree. And, the you know, but it, so I was always reaching for like the next level in the next thing. But when I was, when I was drinking, all of that was gone away. It was like I was just floundering in life. So what happened, and it sounds like to me, what I'm hearing from you is the the fire service was that. It, it gave you something to work towards. But the problem is, because you're not working on that trauma, you're not working on the thing, the causes, right? Causes and conditions. What's causing you to use in the first place? So when this thing was mm-hmm. taken from you or you removed it from your life, however it happens, then you're back to where you were. And we, we have a saying in recovery, and that is that the same person, the same person will use again. So you hadn't worked on that. You know, you had that goal, and then the goal went away. And then because yeah. you hadn't worked on sobriety, quote-unquote sobriety, then you went back. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the next thing I wanted to point out was, uh, folks that are listening, addiction is addiction is addiction. You know, you, you yeah. if you're using heroin... You can't safely go and drink. And if you drink, you can't safely go and use heroin. You know, this is addiction. And and I think that we yep. can't stovepipe addictions, right? You know, so my, my primary drug of choice was alcohol. Uh, and I know, I know enough about recovery. I got no business using anything else that's mood altering. Is it, Would you agree with that? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that was that was the concept I was trapped in, right, before I actually worked on my sobriety. was like, well, I'm not using drugs. You know, it's legal. It's alcohol. What's wrong with it? You know, until I found out what true sobriety was. And it, it's just, it's rang true for me, you know? And even like, even if it could, I don't want to. I don't want it. My life is so much better. Yeah. My life is amazing. And I know I can't, you know, but it's, it's even, even the legal substances are still mind altering. They still have the side effects. They still have, the damage that they cause. And then for me, it's, it's just not worth it. it. It's not, not worth it at all. I love my life today. I've loved the past four years of sobriety and what I get to do. And I wouldn't, you know, trade that for the world. Um, and it, it's made me a better father. It's made me a better husband. You know, it's made me a better human being. And I, I those are things that you can't buy. Those aren't, you know, and, and I, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for nothing. No. And what, and it sounds like, that you came to the same conclusion that I did, and that is that when you are saved from your addiction, which is certain death, it's just a different kind mm-hmm. of a death, it's a slower death, that when you are saved from it, and anybody that's gotten into long-term recovery is a miracle. So you, are you, Brendan, are a miracle. And do you not get the sense that in the tragedy that you experienced, that you were saved for a purpose, for a cause, and does that not help you stay sober every day, knowing that there was a reason why you survived that that tragedy? Wholeheartedly. And wholeheartedly, it took years. It would to just find be a out. waste to not. It would be dishonoring in a lot of ways to go back and use yep. and do that. Do you feel that? Completely. Oh yeah. It took me quite a while to figure out that I have purpose and there's a reason why I survived and. You know, but I get to live that purpose out today and I get to honor my brothers by helping others, you know, continuing on their legacy and sharing about who they were and the impact they had on my life because I wouldn't be here without them. You know, um, I, 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 jails, institutions, death, right? Yep. That, that, that's, that's, that's the saying how it goes. And I believe those, those three things to hold true. And so by walking through what I've walked through, it's been painful. Yeah. Do I miss them wholeheartedly? Do, do I wish the families have their loved ones? Yeah, I do. I, I do so much for that to happen, but it's it, today. That's not the reality, but I've seen so much growth out of it. You know, I've seen so much beauty. I've seen so much healing and I want to continue to push forward with that so that 20 years from now, they're still being remembered in that tragedy, you know, as unfortunate and as sad as it is and, and how much I miss them daily i'm I'm paying it forward because of the sacrifice that they made for others and when you have that and when you're working towards that sort of a goal 
And part of your sobriety is honoring others and knowing that others count on you and look to you. It helps you. I, I know in my own case, and I'm sure that uh, this applied to you as well. I, I've in sobriety, I've traveled quite a bit, been in hotel rooms and been overseas, been in hotel rooms overseas. I've been to countries in Eastern Europe where I think uh, vodka is probably more prevalent than, than water and stayed sober. And I remember in my mind, um, being in one particular country, sitting in the hotel room and, you know, being by myself. And I thought, you know, I could, I could drink right now. I could, you know, I could, who would know? Who would know? I could drink. And, but by then I had enough sobriety behind me to know that number one, it wouldn't just be on that trip. There's just no way. I, I knew me and I knew that that would just set off a, a disastrous uh, progression again. And the second thing that kept hitting me is, no, there's too many people to count on me. You know, by then I'm sponsoring, you know, men in, in, the, in my, my uh, chosen recovery program, uh, my wife, uh, my mother, my, uh, you know, the people, there were people that were back here. You know, I do this podcast for goodness sake. I go out and, like you, I go out in the public and I talk about sobriety and I talk about the benefits of sobriety and I talk about all these different things. And I could not with a straight face, come back to the United States and get on this podcast or get in front of the public and talk about the benefits of sobriety, knowing that in that one instance, I went overseas and just said, you know what, I'm going to let let my hair down and do what I'm going to do when I'm over here. I, I couldn't do that. So um, yeah. I think for our listeners, and know it, you've got to find that purpose. You've got to find your higher power. You've got to work the program. You've got to deal with the trauma and have a reason to not drink, you know, and that, so that, and it's going to be different for each person, isn't it? So for me, that was the logic I used when I was in that, that hotel room. It was okay. A on one hand, nobody would know that I relapsed, but on the other hand, I could never live with myself knowing that I had let all these people down and that, so that's kind of the mental yeah. game that you play with yourself. But for me, it worked. Do you do the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, the, the, the statement of like Pringles, right? Once you pop the top, you can't stop. <laughs> like it's right. not it's not a one and done right like that's not how i i'm full bore like that's that's why i'm an addict right i've 110 in and so that that piece i know to be true um the and, and in all the people that do count on you and i think we, we could put pressure on ourselves too but it's a it's a healthy sense of responsibility right and it's just and i think there comes a lot of responsibility responsibility but also a lot of pride that comes in in knowing that that people are are, are accountable to us, and we're accountable to others. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to have that, you know, and that purpose. We talk about purpose, and it's like that purpose rings true. And you know, everyone has a purpose on this earth wholeheartedly. I believe that completely. And we've got to stay focused on that purpose and be willing to walk through some some good and bad times to get mm -hmm. to that purpose. But it's all worth it, you know. I I trade, yeah. There's, I, no, I never go back. There's no point. Yeah, no. And everybody, like you mentioned, everybody has a purpose. And if you're listening to us right now, you have a purpose on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, not one of us, not one of us knows whether we're going to be alive or dead tomorrow. Not one of us knows that. And I know that sounds kind of morbid, but it's the truth. You don't know how many days you have left on Earth. And it is, it is up to you to utilize every minute you have on earth to the best of your ability and find out what your purpose is. And your purpose is to so serve other people and help them on their journey while on planet earth. I mean, that, that has been my purpose and it sounds like it's your purpose as well. And by using and drugging, we are squandering that time to do what we're called to do. And it sounds like um, you discovered what I discovered and millions of other people in recovery have discovered is that one of the, the secrets of recovery is working with other people and helping other people stay sober and get well. And the funny thing is that as long as we are helping other people, we tend to stay well ourselves because we're focused on the other person. And that sounds like that's a discovery you've made as well. Yeah. Staying, having that connection, you know, when we step out of self, it's huge. You know, it's talked about in so many different recovery platforms, you know, of, of stepping out of self. And I think it's so important because at some point in time, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger than us. When you 
I, I know that you stay in touch with many of the actors that were in the movie. Uh, again, the movie was uh, only the brave. Uh, do you talk about these things? Do you, do you talk about recovery issues? Like you, you mentioned how uh, Dra- Josh Brolin is in recovery. I mean, is this something that you, how often do you talk to him and, and talk about recovery related matters? I would say, I mean, that's a pretty personal relationship, but yeah, sure. I, I reach out to them quite often and just check in and see how they're doing. And, you know, if I, if I see something they've got, or if they see a post on social media, we'll them, Hey, beautiful Christmas photo and stuff. So we stay in contact quite a bit, you know, and they live busy lives and so do I, Yeah. but you know, they, those, everyone involved in that film was so kind and so heartfelt and, and went above and beyond. And, you know, those are things you don't forget, especially in an industry like that. I mean, there's not one person I ran into during that entire process that I felt like, man, this is not a nice person. Yeah. You know, always, even the, the cooks, everybody, right? And so it was just uh, a really cathartic process to go through that. But, the, but then to have people that are supportive and then to have relationships today, you know, it just speaks to who they are as people, just mm-hmm. that they love people just like anybody else. And, you know, it's, um, it's quite amazing to see, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, cause you, you have this picture, right. Of people who are famous that, that are, you know, above then or anything like that. And that's, that's, that's the last thing that I found, you know, um, that's the last thing that I found. And so I'm, I'm fortunate for that. And they might, that might not be the experience for everybody, but with the men and women that I met, I've got nothing but great things to say. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll get a message or an email from somebody and, hey, my, you know, I just watched the film for another time or, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for the experience. And I am so grateful that they put so much passion and, and yeah. their heart into it, you know, because it, it, it meant so much. You know, you it's funny that it's something that hit me. And and that was, by the way, that, and that's really what I was getting at with the, the, the movie and, and your relationships with these these folks. Because uh, I understand that you know those are personal relationships that you have. And I think what I was getting at was more, uh, was this kind of a one and done? They came in, did the movie and left and you never heard from them again? Or are these people that truly did take an interest in what happened? And it sounds like they really have, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they, I mean, you know, like I said, everyone's life's busy and, and things like that. But, you know, I know I could pick up the phone and call and check in and see how they're doing and vice versa. You know, I hear mm-hmm. from them, you know, pretty often. And um, so, yeah, that, that that was that was probably the most. Because you have that feeling, right? It's like, is this going to be a one and done deal? Like, are they? is this because of the job they have at hand. Right. And that, that's, gosh, far from the truth for them. Well, that, that's great to hear. And I, I'll tell you, so I watched the movie and I, and I, I'm maybe like you in this regard that if you're, if you're a first responder, I, I know prior to going into law enforcement and th- those of you that are listening, if you've never heard me before. So my background, I was a Naval, I was a helicopter pilot, in the Navy, then corrections, then a police officer, and then an FBI agent for an entire career. And prior to those careers, uh, I would watch every police movie, every military movie that I could get my hands on. I just, because that's what I always wanted to do. Once I started doing the job, however, uh, you know, particularly being a police officer and then later as an FBI agent, I, I could never watch a movie. Somebody would say, hey, did you see this movie about the FBI? Did you see this movie about the, you know, this police department over here? You should watch it. It's a really good movie. And I never did. So for 20 plus years, I never watched any movie that had anything to do with any first responder or the military because it was just so unrealistic because I I knew the lifestyle. I knew the life and I knew that that that, that what I was saw in the movie just was not an accurate depiction at all of what I was experiencing every day. So when I watched this movie, Only the Brave, I, I went into it with sort of that mindset of, oh, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be Hollywoodized. It's going to be over the top. It's not going to be realistic. But I, I got to tell you, I really sensed what you mentioned, and that is that the, the actors and actresses that were in this movie took this to heart and did is a really good job of trying to portray what it would really be like on the job in the interactions. I thought they did a good job of, you know, getting the banter, getting, you know, how, how first responders treat one another and how they react to certain things. And I, 
did not find myself shying away going, oh, that's fake. That's that's not how it would really be. I really felt like they embraced this and portrayed it fairly, you know, what my experiences on the job has been. Is that how you felt? Yeah, wholeheartedly. I think they did an amazing job. And, you know, there was a boot camp before we started filming, you know, so all the actors went through a boot camp and they cut line and dug line and slept in the dirt and, you know, learn, learn about fire behavior and, um, had to break in boots. They, they didn't get, uh, it wasn't like a knockoff boots. These are real, this real gear they're wearing, wearing that's weighed down, right? This isn't, you know, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get them these boots. Cause they'll look kind of look the same. No, don't know the difference, but these are, these are boots that I spent many painful hikes in breaking in. Mm-hmm. you know and um so they they really took it serious and and learned learned the profession and and, and learned the the family interactions and met with a lot of the families and had that time so and i feel like hollywood's done you know some some great movies that are out there that they've really taken a serious look at like hey how do we really capture a realistic look into this because we want to we want to protect those stories and i think you know i've seen some phenomenal stories that have been told through the through the eyes of film and don't get me wrong like nothing's perfect in life but they had the heart and passion and and that that shows Mm -hmm. that that means a lot yeah i I definitely got that sense and so if you're listening and you've not seen the movie you got to check it out it's uh, only the brave put up by columbia pictures and um, it was really good it was really good yeah, and I I thought it I thought it was very uh, I'm sorry, Sony Pictures, but yeah, only the Brave. Yep, Sony Pictures, only the Brave, and it's worth it's worth checking out. It really is. And so with that, Brendan, uh, tell our listeners how how can they get hold of you? How they can get hold of your organization? And if they want to check out uh, your center out there in Arizona, how how would they do that? Yeah, so hold fast recovery www.holdfastrecovery.com. Our phone number is 1-800-351-6858. Okay, fantastic. And again, it's Brendan McDonough. And um, we'll go ahead and wrap up with this. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. I really do appreciate the story. And and I just think you're doing a phenomenal honor of, you know, for your brothers and, and it's just carrying on their memory and doing great work for the community. And I'm sure all those guys would be proud of you. So as always, I'd like to say, I appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. And and as as I'd like to say, I don't represent any group. I don't represent anyone other than myself. And the same is true of Brandon. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it'll help you. So if I've said anything that does not apply to you or you don't agree with uh, or Brandon said that you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and to help others as well, because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we help to impart the knowledge we've gained to others as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. And let me know how I'm doing and let me know if there's a topic you're interested in hearing and because I'd love to hear from you and take care and we will see you next time. Thank you so much.